as I have the privilege and the pleasure of introducing each of the speakers this weekend, I don't plan for the introductions to be long. Rather, I just enjoy highlighting one or two things that I appreciate about each of the men who've come to be with us. And our first speaker, Dr. Stephen Lawson, I'm grateful for his friendship to me and I'm grateful for his friendship to this church. I joked a couple of years ago that we should name it the Truth and Lawson Conference because <laughs> he's been here every year but one. So this is our ninth year he's been here. This is his eighth time to be with us. So grateful for Dr. Lawson's boldness, clarity, simplicity, not simplistic, but simplicity in preaching. And the fact that my heart is always challenged and moved as the Lord makes use of him here in the midst of our church. So grateful for him. Very busy, travels a lot. Grateful that he's taking the time to come and be with us this weekend. So welcome Dr. Stephen Lawson as he comes to share the word. Well, what a joy it is to be with everyone. Well, I love this conference. I love the spiritual focus of this conference. And it really starts with our host, uh, Richard Caldwell, and I'm so grateful for his friendship. And I'm grateful for his supporting staff, Josh Philpott, and the others here at Founders Baptist Church. So, and it just keeps growing and growing and growing, and it is a privilege. I'm also so thankful to be with so many of my heroes in the faith, other preachers who are strong in the Word of God and who have been a great edification to my own heart and soul, so it's a joy for me to be with you here tonight. The theme of our conference is Truth Worth Dying For, and we have stepped into the deep end of the pool with this subject. And I don't know that any of us here tonight are really fully aware of what this might mean for us if this was to come true. This focus reminds us that there is always a cost involved in being a follower of Jesus Christ. He paid it all. And there is a sense in which it is now incumbent upon us to reciprocate and to pay the great, great price of discipleship. Sometimes this price means loss of friends, loss of family, loss of position, loss of popularity loss of possessions. It can even mean persecution and being run out of town. But the price one pays can also mean the loss of your life. And are we really ready for this? This was certainly true. The prophets of the Old Testament, they believed that the truth was worth dying for, and they had to back it up with their life. Tradition tells us that Isaiah was sawn in two after being put in a log. And the writer of Hebrews, looking back upon the Old Testament saints, said they were stoned, meaning stoned to death. They were sawn in two. They were put to death with the sword. And they proved to be men of whom this world was unworthy. The same high price remained true in the New Testament, especially in the first century. John the Baptist had his head severed and served on a platter. Stephen was stoned to death after addressing the Sanhedrin. 
And James, the brother of John, was put to death with a sword. Eleven of the twelve disciples, we are told, suffered a martyr's death. In fact, Peter was crucified upside down, considering himself unworthy to be put to death in the same manner of his Lord. Andrew was crucified sideways. And Paul was taken out of the Mamertine prison and taken to the outskirts of Rome and had his head severed. And when we come to the book of Revelation, we read that in heaven there is a special group in heaven who are under the altar and under the throne, and they are the martyrs out of the great tribulation who gave their life because of their witness for the gospel. But it didn't stop at the end of the first century. A walk through church history reveals more of the same. Ignatius was fed to the lions in Rome. Polycarp was burned to death in a public marketplace. Justin Martyr was well-named. He was severely beaten and had his head removed. John Huss was burned at the stake. Martin Luther ministered with a death sentence upon his life. And William Tyndale was strangled to death, then his corpse burned and gunpowder put around his torso, and he was blown up into so many pieces, there was nothing left to even bury. John Rogers was burned at the stake in Smithfield, London, and Ridley and Latimer were burned at the same stake back-to-back in Oxford. Thomas Cranmer was met with the same violent death, and the French Huguenots were slaughtered in the St. Bartholomew's Day Massacre, as thousands of them were put to death. No, the price has always been high for followers of Jesus Christ. Tertullian wrote, quote, the blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. And what that means is one Christian's willingness to literally die for the truth becomes that which leads to the conversion of others. We have become a soft generation who lack a spiritual backbone. I'm not certain what we're really willing to die for. Adrian Rogers has rightly observed, the trouble with preachers today is no one wants to kill them anymore. We're just a bunch of nice guys seeking common ground. The preachers have lost their will to fight the good fight for the truth. The words of Jude seem to be foreign and forgotten, to earnestly contend for the faith. We need believers today, we need preachers today who are as bold as a lion and willing to die for the truth. It has been said a man is not willing, he is not ready to live until he's ready to die. The same could be said of preachers. They're not ready to preach until they're ready to die. As Richard Baxter once said, to always preach as a dying man to dying men is never to preach again. In this opening address, I want to set the tone for this conference in a slightly different way. Rather than taking a text of Scripture, which I have done each year that I've been here, 
I want us to turn to church history. And I want to begin the conference not with an exposition, but with an illustration of what it looks like to be so sold out to the Lordship of Jesus Christ that you are willing to die for the truth. I want to draw our attention to one of the bravest band of preachers and believers to ever walk this planet, those who were burned at the stake by Bloody Mary. In the English Reformation, they are known as the Marian martyrs, and they stand out like bright stars on a dark night. And they have so moved me in my ministry and really have provided fellowship with me over the centuries that in my preaching Bible, I carry the picture of the first man they burned at the stake, John Rogers, February the 4th, 1555. As a constant reminder, in the back of my preaching Bible, I carry a wood carving of Rogers being burned at the stake. And when I go to London, the first place I go to is to catch a taxi, take me to Smithfield. And there I go to where the plaque is on the back of the St. Bartholomew's Hospital, interestingly enough, where Martin Lloyd-Jones practiced medicine, to mark the spot where they burned the man of God. And I want to just stand there, though separated by half half of a millennium, just in my own heart, in my own mind, just to identify myself with this man who paid the ultimate price to give his life for the gospel of Jesus Christ. Who is to say but that this day may be fast approaching on the horizon for us? And if so, we need to decide tonight, what am I willing to die for? What truth am I willing to die for? I don't think every truth rises to the highest level of that for which I would die. But there are truths that when put to the test by the grace of God, there must be no reverse gear in me. There must only be a fifth gear forward to lay down my life for him who laid down his life for me. So I want to introduce you to the Marian martyrs tonight, and I want to ask a series of eight questions. I don't know that I have time to go through all these eight questions and for HB to still preach tonight, so we'll see how far we go. Question number one, who? Who was bloody Mary? I was in a store today, and a man was asking me why I'm in town and what I was doing tonight, and I said, have you ever heard of Bloody Mary? He said, I just had one. (laughs) I said, I'm not talking about the drink. I'm talking about the person. I said, do you realize there's a real person named Bloody Mary after which this drink has been named? She's Mary the first. So who was Bloody Mary? She was the daughter of Henry VIII, the man who had all of those wives. 
And she became queen of England. And when you are the monarch of England, that means two things. Number one, you are the head of the church of England. And number two, your title is defender of the faith. And it is that to this very day. And Bloody Mary became head of the church of England by virtue of becoming the monarch, and she was a Catholic through and through. She was a staunch Catholic to the nth degree, and she installed the Catholic faith over the nation of England. She followed her half-brother, Edward, Edward VI, who was the teenage king. He followed Henry VIII, and he died at age 15, and he was a strong Protestant believer. He had Protestant tutors. He was strong in the Word of God for a young man, but he died at age 15. He did everything he could to protect his half-sister, Mary I, become queen after him, and so he put his cousin on the throne, Lady Jane Grey. That only lasted for nine days. And Mary came storming into London, and with public support, she overthrew Lady Jane Grey and assumed the throne of England. J.C. Ryle comments that Mary was a rigid adherent of, Roman, of the Roman church. She was a papist of papists zealous, bigoted, and narrow-minded in the extreme. And under Mary's reign of terror, she immediately made sweeping changes from her Protestant half-brother, and she restored mass, she removed Protestant worship, she denounced the Reformers, she banished foreign Protestants, she removed Protestant leaders from any position of leadership in England, and many Protestants were forced to escape, not the least of which was John Knox. And she reinstated the old statutes that had been put in place by Parliament some 200 years earlier to try to thwart John Wycliffe and his Lollard preachers. This was a nightmare for true Bible believers to have Mary on the throne. Compared to what we have with, with Biden, he doesn't even know where he is. This was a real threat. Her advisors wanted even more drastic measures to be taken, and so it was legislated that all Protestant heretics would be put to death at the stake. And a special commission was appointed to examine and prosecute the Protestants, and their only choice was to recant or be strapped to the stake. And Bloody Mary reigned for four horrific years. So that's number one. Who was Bloody Mary? She was a devil with a blue dress on. Second, who? Who were the Marian martyrs? Well, they were among the strongest Protestant believers alive in England. There were 288 martyrs, 
And some historians would give even higher numbers. And of these martyrs, 26 were ministers. One was the Archbishop of Canterbury. That means he's over every minister in the entire nation, and he reports only to the queen. There were five, there were four bishops, which means they were over many, many, many churches and ministers. 21 were clergy, but the rest were people just like you and me. Laymen, women, children, 54 were women who were burned at the stake. Four were children who were burned at the stake. And 204 were businessmen and common laborers. Four were blind. Some were professionals, lawyers, surgeons, schoolmasters. Others were common workers. They were fishermen and barbers and butlers and butchers and iron makers and upholsterers and shoemakers and, and, and glove makers. It was her intent to strike such fear into the true Christians in England that none would dare to raise a voice against her and that they would step in line and they would become Catholic to the nth degree just like she was. These who were put to death, 288, they were the godliest and the holiest believers in all of England. They were among the best preachers and they were the humblest of God's servants. Third, when were they martyred? In 1555, 71 were burned at the stake. 1556, 89 were burned. 1557, 88 were burned. And in 1558, 40 were burned. J.C. Ryle says, the faggots never ceased to blaze while Mary was alive on the throne. There was always the smoke ascending up into the sky. So fourth, why? Why were they martyred? They were not put to death for criminal offenses that violated God's law. They were not rebels against the queen. They were not anarchists against the monarchy. They were not thieves. They were not murderers. They were not men and women of public rioting that disrupted the social order. They were put to death because they believed that salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, just like you believe the very same. They died for the gospel. They didn't die for secondary matters. They didn't die for form of church government. They did not die for eschatology. They did not die for mode of baptism. They died for what was worth dying for, the very gospel of Jesus Christ. They died for the sufficiency of the cross. They died for the exclusivity of the cross. They died for the finality of the cross. They died for the efficacy of the cross. It was a gospel issue. They did not suffer for vague charges of secondary matters. 
They suffered because they refused to believe and refused to preach the blasphemy that the body and blood of Christ was literally in the elements on the altar in the Mass after the words of consecration were pronounced. And if they did not profess this, they were burned. You and I need to decide tonight, not when the knock comes at the door, not when the warning is given to us, they're coming. What is it that you're willing to die for? If you're a true Christian, there has to be something for which you would give your life unto death, or I doubt you're a true Christian. What is it that you're willing to ante up and put on the altar? Fifth, where? Where were they martyred? (laughs) They were burned throughout all England from coast to coast, from border to border. Most preachers were actually burned at the stake in front of their church to try to strike fear and terror into the hearts of their congregation. They would be marched through the streets of the neighborhoods surrounding their church to make a public display of them and then be tied to a stake and put to death in front of their flock. They were, they were burned alive everywhere in England. In London, in Oxford, in Gloucester. I have the list here. It's too long to read. Canterbury, Essex, Gloucestershire, Norfolk, Bristol, Pembrokeshire, Yorkshire, Cambridgeshire, Wilshire, Somerset, Cornhill, Leicestershire, Middlesex, on and on and on and on. It was a national massacre. Six, who? Who was martyred first? The first to be burned at the stake, as I have already indicated, was John Rogers. You need to know about John Rogers. He's a man in church history who is a giant. We know about Luther, we know about Calvin, we know about Knox, we know about Tyndale, and rightly so, but standing in the shadows is John Rogers. He was a brilliant scholar, well-educated, graduating from Cambridge, Pembroke College. He was so brilliant that he was recruited when Christ's church at Oxford was first started later over which John Owen would become the dean. He was one of the first men recruited to be on faculty at at Christ Church. If you've ever gone to Oxford and seen Christ Church, he was stunningly brilliant. He was ordained a Catholic priest. All the Reformers started out in the Catholic Church. He pastored in London for two years, and he left London and went to the continent of Europe to become a chaplain for a boarding house of businessmen who did 
business in Europe who were from England and very sympathetic to Lutheran doctrine, sola fide. And so Rogers is taken in in this boarding house known as the Company of the Merchant Adventurers to become the chaplain. But guess who is in the back room? None other than William Tyndale, the father of the English Reformation, the father of the English Bible, and the father of the English modern language. And William Tyndale shares the gospel with John Rogers, and Rogers is converted and comes to faith in Christ. Talk about a strange providence. Rogers had to leave England and seemingly just dropped into the lap of Tyndale, and he's converted, but he has this brilliant mind, so he becomes an assistant to William Tyndale. You understand who William Tyndale is. Please tell me you know who he is. He's the first man to translate the New Testament out of the original Greek language. Wycliffe had done it out of the Latin Vulgate. It was a crude and difficult translation, but Tyndale is the first man to do it, and it is so good that 85% of the King James Bible was Tyndale's work that he had already done. Tyndale was proficient in eight languages, that if you heard him speak your mother tongue, you would assume that he grew up next door to you. He was that brilliant. Taught himself Hebrew when there was not one Hebrew teacher in the entire nation of England at this time. And so John Rogers now is converted to Christ. He imbibes the truths of the Reformation, gospel truths, and he comes shoulder to shoulder with Tyndale to help him translate the Old Testament and to help look up things for him. Well, in the strange providence of God, I wish I had time to tell you the story, Tyndale had been underground for an entire decade, hiding anonymously in, in this back room and moving around to different cities in Europe so that he could never be found. He was an outlaw from Henry VIII. Every line of, of the Bible that he translated was a capital crime against Henry VIII, and there were multiple attempts to try to find Tyndale and apprehend him, and they could never find him until they finally got him. There was a young man who squandered his father's entire estate, and the church said, we will repay every cent that you have thrown away. If you'll go to Europe and if you will find Tyndale, we will restore your lost fortune. And so he works his way through Europe until he finally makes contact with Tyndale and Rogers and Miles Coverdale. Until one day, Tyndale is led down a back alley, and it was a setup. And this young man comes in behind Tyndale and points from behind over his head, indicating, this is the one you are to apprehend. And the officials were there around the corner. They arrested Tyndale. They put him in a castle prison for 500 days. When they brought him out after 500 days, I've already told you, they hung him by the neck, they burned him at the stake, and they blew up his body with gunpowder. But when they arrested him, John Rogers ran back to the house 
gathered up Tyndale's work. Tyndale has done Matthew through Revelation, he has done Genesis through Second Chronicles, and he has done Jonah because he wanted every preacher in England to preach, 40 days and London will be destroyed. 40 days and Yorkshire will be destroyed. 40 days and, and Oxford will be destroyed. But there's still the rest of the Old Testament that needs to be translated. Well, the other assistant, Miles Coverdale, then went to England and translated Ezra through Malachi. The problem is he did not know Hebrew. It was a horrible translation. He had to play off of Luther's German Bible. He had to play off of the Latin Vulgate. He had to play off of French commentaries to try to figure out without ever actually translating the Hebrew. It became known as the Coverdale Bible. Well, Rogers remained undercover in Antwerp in what is today Belgium. And he comes in with a copy of the Coverdale Bible this brilliant mind, and he systematically edits and corrects and retranslates the rest of the Old Testament. The English Bible that is in your lap right now, in a major way, is due to this dynamic duo of William Tyndale and John Rogers. Tyndale started it, Rogers completed it. It became known as the Matthew Bible. It was published under the pseudonym of Thomas Matthew to protect their anonymity. Now listen to this sentence. This Matthew Bible was the first complete Bible in English ever translated from the original Greek and Hebrew. He even made some 300-plus edits to Tyndale's work in the Pentateuch. He added, Rogers did, marginal notes to make a study Bible. He puts in prefaces to each book and introductions to each book. He puts in things that he has written on the doctrines of the Bible, and it actually becomes the first comprehensive English commentary on the Bible ever produced. I mean, John Rogers is probably the greatest Christian leader maybe you've never heard of. His Bible was sent to, about 1,500 were produced, it was sent to England, and there Thomas Cranmer, the archbishop, saw it, he got it licensed and it was spread throughout England. Well, Henry VIII died, and his son, Edward VI, now comes to the throne, and Rogers realizes it is safe for him to return to England. So Rogers comes back to England after all this time in Europe translating the Bible and his reputation precedes him, and the English reformers, when they learn that John Rogers has come back, they put him in strategic and key places, one of which was 
to be the preacher at St. Paul's Cathedral, which is the church in London. And he was a bold preacher, and he spoke out against the false gospel traces of it that remained in the Church of England that were carryovers from the Roman Catholic Church, and everything was great until Edward VI died at age 15, and he is succeeded to the throne by Mary I, and she immediately begins to change the entire nation's worship and beliefs about God. Rogers kept preaching at St. Paul's Cross, which is outside of St. Paul's Cathedral in the open area where more people can hear you preach. And he was upholding, quote, the true doctrine taught in King Edward's days and warned against popery and idolatry and, and superstition. And Rogers would not stop preaching. And he was arrested and summoned to come before Mary's council, and he was interrogated. And he says in his own words, I was asked whether I believed in the sacrament to be the very body and blood of our Savior Christ that was born of the Virgin Mary and hung on the cross really and substantially. I answered, no, I think it to be false. Now listen to this next sentence, corporally, meaning bodily, Christ is only in heaven. And so Christ cannot be bodily in your sacrament. He is now in a resurrected, glorified body, seated at the right hand of God the Father, and He will not be here until His second coming. So they threw Him into prison, Newgate Prison. And while He's in prison, the English Parliament reenacted these penal statutes that had been levied against John Wycliffe and the Lollards, putting them to death for having an English Bible. And so only two days later, after passing this, they come after Rogers. He's number one on the hit list. It tells us how visible, how powerful, how gifted John Rogers was. Out of the whole nation, this is who they come after, number one, this preacher at St. Paul's Cathedral. And so he appears to be reexamined again. And he's found guilty of heresy because he denied the Christian character of the church in Rome. It's the whore of Babylon, for heaven's sake, and for denying the real presence of Christ in the Mass. And so he is condemned as a heretic and sentenced to be burned at the stake. Would you be willing to die for that? And so the great day came. February the 4th, 1555, he's brought back before the Bishop of London. Please understand, the Bishop of London, not even the government officials. And the sheriff challenged him to revoke his evil opinion of the Mass. And a pardon was offered to Rogers if he would renounce his confession. And Rogers answered, that which I have preached, I will seal with my blood. The sheriff responded, then you are a heretic. Rogers said, that will be known on the last day. The sheriff chided, I will never pray for you. Rogers answered, but I will pray for you. 
And so they lead Rogers out of his cell and marched him through the streets of London, marched him through Smithfield, which is an area in London right where he had pastored, and the stake was set up within sight of his church, the Church of the Saint Sepulchre. Along the way was his wife and 11 children, the youngest of which he has never seen, delivered while he's in prison. He's not allowed to stop and speak to them. John Fox writes in Fox's Book of Martyrs, his wife and children, being 11 in number and 10 able to go and one sucking on her breast, met him on the way as he went towards Smithfield. This sorrowful sight of his own flesh and blood, meaning his own children, could not move him. I mean, this is like Bunyan with a blind daughter, Mary, but he won't leave the prison. He is a man of convictions in the truth, even having a blind daughter. And Fox writes that Rogers was constantly and cheerfully, he took his death with wonderful patience in the defense and quarrel of Christ's gospel. As he marches to the stake, he quotes Psalm 51, a psalm which he had retranslated for the Matthew Bible. He's marching forward, quoting Scripture, an immense crowd lined both sides of the street. To this point, no one has been put to death by fire. And everyone wants to know what's going to happen. Will these reformers actually hold to their convictions And will they be willing to go all the way to the stake, or will they buckle and weaken and retract their confession? At the execution site, the enthusiasm of the swelling crowd grew stronger as Rogers approached. J.C. Ryle comments, the crowd rent the air with thunders of applause. And the French ambassador was there that day, and he writes as an eyewitness, this day was performed the confirmation of the alliance between the Pope and this kingdom, meaning England, by a public and solemn sacrifice of a preaching doctor named Rogers who has been burned alive for being a Lutheran, which just means he believed in sola fide, but he died persisting in his opinion. The ambassador then said, the greatest part of the people made many exclamations to strengthen his courage. His own congregation is cheering him on. Go all the way, pastor. Fox says, even his children assisted in comforting him in such a manner that it seemed as if, listen to this, Rogers was going to his own wedding. Or that's what the ambassador said. Fox writes, a little before his burning at the stake, his pardon was brought. If he would have recanted, he would have been released, but he utterly refused. Fox writes, the fire was put onto him, and when it had taken hold, both of his legs and shoulders, he as one feeling no smart, meaning no pain, washed his hands in the flame as though he was washing it in cold water. 
And after lifting up his hands unto heaven, the devouring fire consumed his hands, his shoulders, and his legs, leaving him just a torso. And Fox writes, this happy martyr, as though he is standing at the head of the church on his wedding day, yielded up his spirit into the hands of his heavenly Father. Ryle concludes, he was the first martyr of all the blessed company that suffered in Queen Mary's time. He gave the first sacrifice upon the fire. Mary thought she would defeat Protestantism. It only poured gas on the fire. Seventh, who followed Roger's martyrdom? Obviously, I don't have time. There are 287 more. I'll just have to fast forward through my notes. Preacher after preacher after preacher being marched to the stake, each one giving their last words. Roland Taylor, I'm almost home. I lack but just two styles to go, and I'm at my father's house. Good people, I have taught you nothing but God's holy word. I am come here to seal it with my blood. John Bradford was martyred with the same stake with another young man named John Leaf, back to back, torched together. Bradford said, Oh, England, England, repent of your sins. Beware of idolatry. Beware of Antichrist. And then Bradford said to the young man, Be of good comfort, brother for we shall have a merry supper with the Lord this night. And I read this this afternoon. It's so interesting. A woman in his church prepared a shirt for him to wear as he's strapped to the stake, and it is a wedding shirt, like one would wear at their wedding, for this is his wedding day, that he shall go to the great bridegroom and be united to him. And finally, you know the story of Hugh Latimer and Nicholas Ridley as they were joined together at the same stake. Hugh Latimer was the greatest preacher in all of England, period, paragraph. He was the trumpet voice for the English Reformation. He's approaching his 70s. He's an older man. He's preaching, and word comes to him they're coming for you right now. Latimer said, I go as willing to London to render a reckoning of my doctrine as I have ever gone to any place in the world. He would not run. He would not hide. He continued in his pulpit, and he continued to preach in his pulpit and he said, I thank God that He has prolonged my life to this end, that I may glorify God by this kind of death. He praises God that He had not died earlier, but that He could be all the way to the end, testifying for Christ. 
They take him to Oxford. I wish I had the opportunity to walk you through the trials at Oxford. I had a man give me, it's about this thick, an unedited version of Fox's Book of Martyrs before the Catholic Church came and stripped out so much of it. All of the trials at Oxford that Latimer and Ridley had to go through, it is cruelty on steroids. They condemn Latimer. They bring Nicholas Ridley, who is the architect of the English Reformation. He's the Bishop of London. And they decide they're going to burn Ridley and Latimer at the same stake. So they march them out. I stood right there in the middle of the street where X marks the spot where these men, these two stalwarts of the faith, were tied to the same stake and set on fire. And Latimer, the preacher, said to Ridley, the bishop, as the fire was lit, be of good comfort, Master Ridley, and play the man. We shall this day light such a candle by God's grace in England that I trust shall never be put out. And it has never been put out. We're talking about it tonight. And then Thomas Cranmer, who was the Archbishop of England, they brought him to Oxford as well. And in his examination, he weakened and he renounced the true gospel. They made him write out a confession. They put him in the pulpit. I think it's St. Mary's Church in Oxford. You're going to read this to everybody. They had already reviewed what he was to read. He got in the pulpit, started to read it, and then he stopped reading it. And he said, as for the Pope, I refuse him as Christ's enemy and the Antichrist with all his false doctrine. They were in shock. They pulled him out of the pulpit, lest he say any more. They rushed him to the stake, and as they lit the fire, Cranmer said, my right hand must go into the hot fire first, because it is with this right hand I signed my recanting of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And his hand was consumed with fire, and the fire ran up his arm to the rest of his body while the fire was lit at his feet. So what can we conclude? Really, number eight, what can we conclude? And I'm finished. What can we say about these men who were willing to die for the gospel that you and I believe? They had no religious freedom. Well, number one, they were Bible men. <laughs> they were Bible men to the nth degree. Whatever the Bible says, that is what they believe, not what Rome says, not what the Pope says, not what ecclesiastical councils say, not what the church fathers say, not what anyone says. What does Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John say? What does Peter, Paul, and the prophets say? That's what they believe. They were Bible men. You and I must be Bible people. Second, they were gospel men. Their martyrdom was all about the gospel. They understood that the mass was a frontal assault on the purity of the grace of God. They understood that it was a filthy corruption of Christ and Him crucified. 
and they wouldn't stand for it. They majored on majors, not on minors. They understood the power of the cross to save and the power of the cross alone to save. And finally, they were courageous men. They were fearless in the face of persecution. They did not flinch when put to the test of their convictions. They chose death over life because they chose truth over heresy. They were bold like Daniel in the lion's den. They were brave like Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in the fiery furnace. They would not bow and they would not budge. But unlike the three Hebrew men, they did burn. As we start this conference tonight, as it will extend into Sunday, it's a big topic, Pastor. Truth worth dying for? I mean, we need to pause and meditate. Selah. Are we willing to die for the truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ? And as our culture is becoming more and more godless, as even tonight our country is sinking into the abyss of depravity, they may be coming for us. They may be coming for these men on the first two rows here to try to intimidate you. But they may be coming for you as well. Men, women, and children. It was this way in the Old Testament. It was this way in the New Testament. It was this way down through the centuries for the church. Who is to say what the tribulation will be that lies immediately before us in the last hours of human history? May God give you much grace to stand for the truth of the gospel. Father, we thank you for this conference. We are somewhat jarred by the subject, the topic. It really separates the men from the boys. It really separates the contenders from the pretenders. And in a sense, it separates the wheat from the tares. And so, Father, use the messages that will follow to point us to the example of Christ who went all the way to Calvary and laid down His life for us. May that grace be abundant in our lives. May you give us wisdom to know upon which hills to die. We can't die on every hill, but there are certain truths for which we would give our life. What are they? Embed it deeply in our soul. We are so grateful that your Son is the resurrection and life. And even though 
we die, we will live forever with Him. In Christ's name, Amen.